0: This episode of Armchair Explorer is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. With seven drive modes, the Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. And epic journeys is what we're all about. Learn more at nissanusa.com. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news,
1: where to go when everywhere is so rich and interesting and given that enormous conundrum of trying to choose where to go maybe the simplest thing to do is just explore where i am right now right this very minute and to allow myself to be filled with awe and astonishment and wonder at all this right now
0: An adventure is usually thought of as something that takes place in a distant corner of the world something that is physically challenging or even risky something exotic and far flung why is that most of you guys i'm sure that listen to this show have an itch for the unknown most of you are travelers and want to see more of this amazing planet of ours But if we just see adventure in those epic terms, it's something we do now and again, if we're lucky. It's not part of our daily lives. And when Alistair Humphreys began feeling that hunger for adventure, he went in search of it in those epic terms. But in doing so, he discovered something that surprised him. And we're going to go on a journey with him to find out what that was, tracing his life of adventure and what he's learned along the way. And let me tell you, it is one hell of a ride. Are you ready? Let's go. Alistair Humphreys is a legend in the world of adventure and a personal hero of mine. I love the spirit in which he travels and the way that he inspires all of us to get out there and live our lives to the full. You're going to love hanging out with him. He's written numerous books from travel writing and adventure philosophy to kids' books and more. In fact, he's written books about all the adventures you're going to hear about today. So go and check out his website if you like what you hear, alistairhumphreys.com or follow him on Instagram at Alistair Humphreys. I'll link to those in the show notes as well. But I particularly want to shout out his new book today. It's called Local, and in many ways, it's the culmination of his thinking over two decades of travel. And it's inspiring and surprising in equal measure. I won't spoil it because we're going to hear more about it at the end. But do check that out. You can order from his website or wherever you get your books. And if you're interested in different approaches to adventure and a life well-traveled and well-lived, check out our Rolf Potts episode. He's the author of Vagabonding and another absolute legend. But first, welcome to Armchair Explorer, where the world's greatest adventurers tell their best stories from the road. My name's Aaron Miller. I'm a travel writer and your host. And really quickly, before we get going, if you like this show, please help spread the word. All I ask is that you tell one friend about one episode. It really does make a bigger difference than you'd think. So thank you in advance for everything that you do. And thank you if you've already done it. Don't stop there. Keep spreading the word. Connect with me on socials too at Armchair Explorer Podcast. I'm always open to hearing about your dream guests, what part of the world you want to explore next and where you want me to steer this armchair exploring vessel of ours. But for now, let's get on with the show. Our story begins when Alistair is 22 years old, he's just graduated university, his friends are off starting their careers, but he is gazing outward, dreaming of adventure.
1: I think I was just trying to dare myself to shake off the comfortable shackles of having a really nice, normal, happy, friendly, safe... uh, life really which which i know for billions of people would sound utterly ridiculous but i think i just wanted to try and dare myself to try and make things a bit more difficult and uncertain for a while in some sort of optimistic gamble that doing so would eventually lead to some sort of happiness or fulfillment or all these sort of things that send us off exploring around the world these days, I think I can find a good deal of happiness with a comfortable chair, a good book and a cup of coffee. But certainly in the days when I was driven to want to go and cycle around the world, I really felt quite strongly that I needed to earn the right to sit in that comfortable chair and drink that cup of coffee and and to sort of earn and appreciate that. And, and you do that by putting yourself through some arbitrary, difficult, hard challenges. I suppose it's no different really to why a lot of people might sign up to say a a marathon or something. I mean running a marathon is a miserable experience. You don't do it because you're enjoying it. You do it because of how you will feel afterwards and the things that you will learn about yourself in the process and uh, and travel for me certainly when I began was very much about pushing myself hard um, to deliberately have a masochistic ascetic fairly miserable sort of experience in the expectations that when i came back that hot shower and the comfy bed would really feel great and i would actually appreciate them for once rather than taking everything for granted
0: alistair cites a book called candide by voltaire as part of his inspiration and there's a quote in there which sums up what he means I should like to know which is worse, to be ravished a hundred times by pirates and have a buttock cut off and run the gauntlet of the Bulgarians and be flogged and hanged in an auto fé, and be dissected and have to row in a galley, in short, to undergo all the miseries we have each of us suffered, or simply to sit here and do nothing. It's an interesting idea, well, apart from getting your buttock cut off, if we never set off, if we assume that our comfortable lives are our best lives, we will never know for sure if we are right. Alistair didn't want to live with that uncertainty, so he devised a plan. He was going to go on a bike ride, but not just any old bike ride, oh no. He wanted to bike around the entire circumference of the globe, it would take Years. Years! He planned to start in Europe, travel down through the Middle East, across Asia, and then make it over to North and South America, tracing the length of five of the world's continents. It was a difficult choice, and he had a price to pay. He would have to leave behind a beloved girlfriend of four years, friends, family, every familiar street corner and pub and garden in order to fling himself fully into the unknown. But he had to know which was better to live a life of adventure but also hardship or live a life of comfort and never know i let go of everything that makes life secure normal and conventionally happy he wrote i didn't think i'd find it there he got on his bike and began to pedal
1: I'm often struck when I see online people beginning their own adventures and quite often people have a big gathering of all their friends and family and everyone claps and cheers and then they cycle off down the road um and I think that's great I did not want to do that at all because I didn't feel any sense of celebration or excitement before I set off to cycle around the world, I felt, if anything, like a condemned man, a a prisoner who was being shipped off to exile. I felt a fraud, being convinced that I was going to quit very soon. A um, an imposter that I was totally out of my depth. I was claiming to do something that I had no idea how to go about doing, and I felt very little sense of joy or liberation. I just felt horrible really and i felt like that at the start of most of my big adventures but soon after that once you actually get going and you get over this of the sadness or the fear then comes the thrill the sort of looking around you as you pedal down the road thinking wow it's monday morning and i have nothing to do today except pedal as far as i can the whole world is out there waiting for me who knows who i'll meet next where i'll go who knows where i'm going to sleep tonight i've got no idea what my next meal is going to be i am free i'm the king of the world and that's that's the great side of it but for me it doesn't come immediately i definitely find starting trips quite a frightening unsettling experience
0: I have crossed my first border, he wrote, from being a person who is dreaming of his big journey to somebody who is on his big journey. I love that, that first border, and maybe the hardest is going from dream to reality. He passed through France and Belgium sampling chocolate and cappuccinos, passing quiet cornfields on aimless country roads. It was hard and beautiful and everything in between. And then one morning, somebody told him that two planes had crashed into New York's Twin Towers.
1: All of my planning and preparation then went completely out of the window. And when I got to Istanbul, instead of using the Iran and Pakistan visas in my passport, I had to start chasing around embassies to find, try and get a visa for for Syria, for Lebanon, for for Sudan, and set off to cycle down to South Africa. had to buy myself a pair of flip-flops and post home my winter jacket. And I think what was interesting about that entire experience was that if you told me that I had to go cycle down Africa essentially with no planning at all, just literally wing it and make it up, I would not have dared begin do that but all my planning and preparation that i did back in the uk that gave me the, the nerve to get out the door and start cycling and then all of that planning and preparation went out the window but by then it didn't matter because i was already in motion i had some momentum some confidence and i've realized then that actually cycling around the world is exactly just like cycling for a weekend you just cycle down the road when you get tired you put up your tent next day you cycle again and you just repeat that for As long as it takes, you'll get around the planet and you can just cycle down Africa and make it up as you go along. But I needed the practical, pragmatic planning to get me out the front door in the first place.
0: Alistair spent a blissful few days in Istanbul, wandering disorientated and enchanted, he wrote. I graze constantly on snacks from street stalls, lured by scents, colours and persuasive sales talk, a bubbling cauldron of sensations and life being lived with energy. In Syria, he stood on the stage of an empty Roman amphitheater and sang happy birthday to himself. On Christmas morning in Dana, a village clustered on the scrubby hills of Jordan, he watched the sunrise and bellowed carols as he biked down the streets. Eventually, he crossed into Egypt, pedaling along the verdant banks of the Nile, swallows dipping in and out of the river before boarding a ferry to Sudan.
1: Sudan had a really bad reputation of being a dangerous place to go and everyone was warning me about sudan and on top of the the sort of security fears was the fact that once you got, got beyond lake Nasser, there was no road across the nubian desert it was just crossing an empty desert for about three weeks until i could reconnect with a road near khartoum Um, that's now all tarmac, the entire thing. But back in my day, it was a a full desert crossing. So I was very worried about two things that I felt were beyond my control, the desert and the security. But immediately upon arriving in Sudan, my worries about the the safety of the country just evaporated. I've never been, at that point, had never been to a place that was just so clearly joyful and welcoming and trusting and the people i met there were just incredibly kind even on a scale of all the lovely kind people that myself and all people who travel tend to experience so i love that aspect and it just felt like a really liberating thing. It's weight off my shoulders of oh fantastic this is going to be a great place the only thing i need to worry about here is a desert and wow actually a desert is pretty exciting. I've never done something like this before, and I camped out in the the sand uh, for the first night, and I was just so excited. And from then on, Africa felt to me like an exciting opportunity, rather than a scary hurdle to, to be overcome.
0: He rode through Ethiopia, Kenya, Tanzania, Malawi, Mozambique, Zimbabwe, Botswana, Swaziland, all the way to Cape Town on the southern tip of South Africa. It was incredible. In Ethiopia, he visited Lalabella, where 11 churches were carved entirely of stone and white-robed priests threw incense beneath tolling bells. He tracked elephants through the bush in Kenya, spent the night in a Maasai village, and rode beneath the shade of enormous baobab trees. In Mozambique, he meandered through a smattering of small villages. Each village pump is colorful and noisy, a blossom of skirts and plastic containers and shrieks of hilarity and gossip, he wrote. But it was also hard. Nearly every day, his ride dipped him into deep pits of loneliness and despair, like a malicious dance partner flirting with agony. He yearned for his ex-girlfriend. He ached for the comforts of home. He cried often. But just before he would scrap his plans and head to the nearest airport, something would lift him out again, a warm meal, a kind word, a spectacular sunrise, like a helping hand pulling him back into the dance. By the time he arrived in South Africa and boarded a boat to South America, he had already been traveling alone for over a
1: year. South America felt like a new beginning for me. And in some ways it was. I'd been gearing up from my front door to eventually get myself to Table Mountain at South Africa, uh, all in one push, really. And from there, I crossed the Atlantic by sailing boat, and then I started again at the very southern tip of Patagonia, Tierra del Fuego, the town of Ushuaia. And that really felt like a new beginning. Everything I'd done till now felt like like it was inconsequential really, because I was right back at mile zero and I was going to try and cycle to Alaska. And that was a heck of a long way, more than a third of the circumference of the globe away. So that very much felt like a new beginning. And it strikes me now when I think back of the different continents, I just think of South America as being about beautiful, wild campsites. So enjoying being out in the middle of nowhere, no one on the planet knows where I am and that just feels great. Sometimes it feels awful, but the fine line between solitude and loneliness, I, I reveled in the just times out, places like the Salada Ayuni in Bolivia, or the, the Andes Mountains, or beautiful greenery of Colombia, just thinking, wow, this is a wonderful, beautiful, natural wild land to be cycling up for a year or so.
0: But the question remained his quest had not been answered. If he couldn't find happiness amongst his friends and loved ones in England, and he couldn't find it sipping coffee in the French countryside, or standing in the blazing red canyons of the Jordanian desert, or on the lush banks of the Nile. Where was it hiding? This episode of Armchair Explorer is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on earth. And Pathfinder, that's a pretty cool name, isn't it? Because that's also what this show is all about. Exploring, getting off trail, having adventures, finding your own path and living life to the fullest. Sound like you? Yep, sounds like me too. Which is why I'm so excited to partner with Nissan. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has seven drive modes, available intelligent 4x4. It's got the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds. So go ahead and bring all that gear with you and lots more. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder, a vehicle Built for adventures everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at nissanusa.com. He bicycled naked over the crystallized white salt flats of Bolivia, camped in the deserts of Arizona, danced in the plazas and dive bars, went weeks at a time without showering, and slowly made his way along the Pacific coastline of the Americas until he finally boarded a boat in Alaska and crossed the Pacific into Russia.
1: Riding through Siberia in the wintertime was physically really gruelling temperatures down to minus 40 degrees literally on the other side of the planet from my home freezing cold sleeping in a tent pretty grinding and brutal and so the kindness of people then was amplified a lot and although Siberia is huge and empty there's small villages dotted along the way and so my memories now of Siberia are a mixture of these empty, ridiculously cold nights in the middle of nowhere, alternating with times when I get to a little village and be showered with the most kindness I'd encountered since I cycled through the Middle East. And in light of the, the, the news that we always see on TV, it really strikes me regularly that the two parts of the world where I felt the most welcomed as a stranger and outsider were in the middle east and in russia uh, two parts of the world are often in the news for for less cheerful reasons these days um but siberia is a tough tough place it was it was one of the saddest areas i went through in terms of just seeing the crumbling of society how these uh, the communities that had been propped up by the Soviet Union for so long were now just being forgotten and neglected and often literally falling apart you know r- uh, bridges falling down across rivers that meant you could some places only access once the rivers froze in wintertime so it was a hard landscape hard drinking hard tough scary people often but also this undercurrent of warmth and a a small incident that i think summed up those wild crazy three months as well as anything was one night cycling along on um i say night because i i was on a race to get out of russia before my visa ran out so i was having to push on into darkness most evenings and it was pretty hard when the road is covered in snow and it's freezing and you've got to find somewhere to put your tent up and a car passed and it stopped and that was a very common occurrence people would usually stop and they'd chat like what on earth are you doing you crazy guy on your bicycle in the middle of winter but in this time was the difference was that a couple of guys that got out were completely drunk on vodka which wasn't uncommon but what was unusual was that one of them had a gun and uh, robbed me at gunpoint which is a horrible experience and the only time in the whole world that I got robbed. And I was really angry because I was so looking forward to being able to say what a great place Russia was and how it was countering so many preconceptions. And then this happens and this idiot and I was really furious. So I gave him my sort of decoy wallet with a bit of cash in. But at the same time, I was lost. I didn't really know where I was. So once he nicked my wallet, I then asked for help. And so he then kindly got out my map and he's very kind and helpful, giving me directions and helping me navigate. Uh, and then off he went. So with and that really summed up to me, Russia, there's this sort of slight air of craziness, but in a good hearted, warm person at the depth of it all as well. It has
0: been a warm welcome discovery that I can find something in common with almost everyone in the world, he wrote. I have come to realize that every extraordinary place is nothing more than somebody else's normality. It is just exciting to see normality through fresh eyes. And that is why, as I imagine the end of my ride and my return to Yorkshire, I still feel that there really is no place like home. And indeed, four years and over 45,000 miles later, he finished his journey. he had set off without fanfare and he returned without celebration. The end of all my exploring has been to arrive where I started, he wrote, and know the place for the first time. And perhaps in the end, that was the point of it all.
1: I think a lot of people spend a lot of time planning their adventures and their travels and going into all sorts of careful preparation but nobody pays much attention to what happens after the journey and i now know lots of people who've been on all sorts of big and crazy journeys and expeditions and without failure without exception i think all of us struggle to Come home. I think mean, some people go away on adventures because they're running away from something, but of course, eventually you come back and then all those things are still there waiting for you, or you're trying to run away for yourself, but <laughs> wherever you go, you take yourself with you. Or even if you just go off on an adventure for more cheerful reasons, coming home to a normal, comparatively mundane, regular life can feel like an anticlimax and a come down. So I felt a a real mixture of things when I got back from cycling around the world I'd been away from home for four years so I was delighted to see friends and family again and and to not be a stranger to not be the weird person that everyone was staring at the whole time to, to just be part of an anonymous majority again felt really nice until it didn't until it just felt boring again and I thought wow has my life peaked is everything for the rest of my life going to seem a pale comparison of those glorious days out on the open road which already in my mind I was polishing into memories far more vivid and exciting than the often quite boring or frustrating realities of travel so I found coming home really hard and to be honest I'm not sure I've ever quite um, managed to just live a normal happy life because a lot of what I do is measured in comparison to those days cycling around the world. I sometimes feel that if I wanted an interesting life, then I was right to go chasing adventures. But if I wanted a happy life, then maybe I should have just got a normal job and gone on some small adventures in my uh, breaks from work.
0: His four years traveling the world had answered some questions, but it left him with more, and it didn't satiate his need for adventure. Perhaps we can't have an all. Perhaps, in answer to Candide's question, neither is worse and neither is better. They are just two sides of the same coin, both with value, but never on the same side. But try as he might, the life of interest and adventure pulled at his heartstrings the hardest.
1: After cycling around the world, I then started chasing other sorts of big adventures um i wanted to go to different parts of the world and travel in different ways and travel by myself and with different people so i wanted all sorts of a real range of journeys so i walked across southern india and rode across the atlantic ocean and uh, across the empty quarter deserts of quite big traditional sort of expeditions chasing this notion of an adventurous life but at some point, it started to dawn on me a bit that I was getting quite good at this sort of stuff now. You know, it's not rocket science, but so I was getting quite good at having a miserable time putting up my tent at night and repeating the process the next morning. And I kind of knew now that if I took on a big journey that I'd probably get to the end of it and succeed at it, which takes away quite a lot of the uncertainty, the risk, the surprise, the sheer adventurousness of the experience and i wondered whether in my heart what i was doing now was actually just the easy option whether in my own way these adventures were my version of my comfort zone and a bit of a rut and therefore i i tried to dare myself to think a bit differently about what adventure meant to me and if adventure was about uncertainty and not knowing if you'll succeed and being massively out of your comfort zone and not knowing how things are going to turn out. But with that thrilling small little possibility of, wow, this could be great if it works, then perhaps I needed to do something really different.
0: Another of his favourite quotes came from the adventurer Fiona Campbell, who walked around the world. I don't know if I can do this, she said as she embarked. Then again, I don't know that I can't. He missed that feeling. And then he had an idea inspired by one of his favourite travel books of all time.
1: Back in the 1930s, Laurie Lee walked through Spain playing the violin, sleeping on hills, earning money from his busking. And the book he wrote, As I Walked Out One Midsummer Morning, is a beautiful travel book. I've always thought of it as my favourite travel book. And I've always, for about 15 years, I'd been saying, oh, I'd love to do that. I'd love to go and walk through Spain like Laurie Lee. But I can't play the violin at all. I have no musical skill. I hate karaoke or dancing or anything like that. It terrifies me. And so I'd always just dismissed it. Until now, with my thinking differently about adventure, I realized that the fear that I felt about having to play the violin was exactly what. I'd needed if I wanted an adventure now. So I had six months of violin lessons. <laughs> I sounded like a strangled cat. It was absolutely horrific but I decided to give it a go anyway and I spent a month walking along Laurie Lee's route from through northern Spain to Madrid with no money, no credit card and only my appalling violin skills to earn some money for the next meal. It was a terrifying, terrifying, humiliating, ridiculous experience and It was one of the best and most thrilling adventures of my life.
0: It was an insane idea, but a brilliant one. It flipped the typical conception of adventure on its head from something physically grueling to something mentally challenging. But in typical Alistair fashion, he had to take it one step further.
1: It was absolutely critical in my mind that if I was going to do Laurie Lee's walk through Spain, I needed to go with the violin and no money, no safety net. When I had the idea, I sort of imagined that in six months I'd get quite good at the violin and then I'd be able to definitely earn a bit of money. But actually, I was so bad. It's so hard. And just before I set off I was thinking no one is going to give me any money this is a stupid idea it's just ridiculous so therefore what I need to do is take some take my credit card with me and I'll play the violin and do all that sort of stuff but I'll take my credit card and I realized that if I did that the entire trip was was just a nonsense really for the whole for the thing it would have been a sort of novelty holiday really but for this to be an adventure I needed to throw away the safety net of the credit card and I needed to stand up in that first town square and busk for the very first time knowing that if I want to eat in the next month I have to do this and I have to stick at it until I earn a coin otherwise I'm going to get extremely hungry it was absolutely vital that it was uh, all or bust
0: so beat up violin and hand one backpack and no credit card he arrived in northern spain in the very same place where lori lee had begun his journey
1: it was a fairly typical little quiet sleepy spanish town and when i arrived i arrived by plane and i stayed in an airbnb and then the next morning i began so i walked out of this airbnb and i had cash so i lined up the final coins from my pocket on a little park bench in a little pyramid and I walked off to find a place to busk and I'd already found what seemed like the perfect place to do it when I'd been scouting earlier but someone was there already and they were playing an instrument they were playing it really well I was oh no I can't come and play in this place now someone's stolen my place and look at him he's good and to be honest I don't think he was very good and he, he was playing a penny whistle or something and he was a bit of a sort of hobo type and he was a bit rubbish at it, but I now looked at him as though he was some sort of hero because he was doing what I did not dare do. So I then went to a second-rate little Spanish plaza.
0: It was a clear morning, the shade cooling the white and grey stones of the plaza. The sun having not yet cleared the rooftops of the buildings looking down into the square. Pigeons cooed and pecked at the ground. Several middle-aged men sat chatting, some on the steps of the fountains, others lined up on park benches, all of them glancing at Alistair in his plaid shirt and sneakers. He took his time setting up his stand, his backpack and sleeping pad folded up next to him, but finally he could procrastinate no longer.
1: I'd never practiced busking at home. I practiced the violin, but I deliberately didn't practice busking in my hometown because I just wanted maximum immersion, maximum terror on day one. So I set out my violin case, like you see proper people do on the street in London. I had my little music stand. I set that up. And the first time... I started to play, of course, people start to look at you and I just felt all these eyes staring on me. So one of those humiliating experiences like it, that just take you back to your school days and the shame and embarrassment of everyone staring at you for something. It was terrifying and embarrassing and frightening. And I could still sort of find it funny because I, I enjoy the sense of the ridiculous, but I was thinking, man, this is utterly ridiculous. No one's going to give me money. And for a couple of hours, I was playing away. I only knew about five little tunes, each of about 30 seconds. And I was just looping through these terrible little ditties with people ignoring me, swerving around me, deliberately looking at their phones, clearly blanking me or sort of wrinkling their nose at me in disgust. And I was just shriveling down to this mere shell of a man.
0: He made a short film about this. I'll put the link in the show notes It is hard to watch and also hard to take your eyes off it. I felt for him, I really did, in a way, surprisingly, that I didn't, reading about his bike trip. This, standing in front of a crowd of people, playing the violin badly for your supper, was somehow far more terrifying.
1: Eventually an elderly gentleman walked towards me and I thought he was going to shout at me and tell me to go away because he'd been watching me for ages. And if he'd shouted at me and said, go away, I think that would have broken me and I'd have just quit and thought, right, it was nice to try, but this is too much, it's too hard. But he didn't shout at me. Instead, he reached into his pocket and he pulled out a coin and he gave it to me. And this is one of those just pivotal moments in a journey because if you've earned one coin you can earn more coins you know after that one coin the rest is easy and it was one of the most thrilling and exciting and rewarding moments of my life and if I hadn't been so desperate to spend that coin on a loaf of bread I would love to have kept it as a sort of lucky talisman because it was a really really big moment and that man he just gave me a small little coin and went on his day he has no idea what an impact that small act of kindness had it was wonderful
0: that old man would never know the true value of the coin he dropped into that violin case it kept him going it spurred him on without it he certainly wouldn't have eaten that night and he might have packed it all in But as he pocketed his hard-won coin, the words of Fiona Campbell again echoed in his mind. I'm not sure I can do this, but I'm not sure that I can't.
1: So it took me a month to walk the 500 miles through the mountainous route to Madrid. And what I could have done was on that first day when that man gave me a coin, because obviously I then had a bit of confidence, I could have kept playing for the whole day and maybe I'd have earned 10 euros and with 10 euros I could have gone and bought enough rice to last me for the entire month and I could have just walked to Madrid but that was not the point of what I was trying to do so what I came up with was an idea that whenever I got money I had to spend all of it immediately (laughs) and that meant that the next day or the next village I got to I would have no money again and they a process would start again if i want to eat tonight i must busk and earn a coin so i was always nervous i always found it hard but nothing is as hard as that first time it got much easier after that some days you so i mean a couple of days i would um people would throw a coin in the Box before I'd even begun to play, like woohoo, this is unbelievably easy. Some days you play for hours before you finally get 50 cents to go and buy a loaf of bread. It's fascinating, the, the experience of it. One day I was just playing away on a street in a little town and it really wasn't going very well. And then a tourist bus arrived, A load of Spanish tourists got off and gave me 20 euros. No man needs 20 euros. That's a ridiculous amount of money. I was like the king of the world. So then I went to a supermarket and I just bought ice cream, beer and biscuits and just had a massive feast, walked out of town. And then, of course, the next morning, I'm hungry again with no money in my pocket. And the process begins again.
0: Over the years, whenever people have plied him with questions of why does he go on these adventures, he would say that he needed to escape the conventional, see the far corners of the world, drop himself into wild and unknown places to find his meaning. But after returning from his midsummer morning, he realized he'd gotten it wrong. Perhaps the it, the meaning he was looking for, wasn't a place. Perhaps it was a state of mind. And then he had his big idea.
1: The idea of micro-adventures started to come to me in two separate ways. One was that when I was off on these big adventures um, in the desert in in, uh, Oman or on an ice cap in Greenland or in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, uh, these are very different places. But what I was getting out of that experience, all the sort of internal stuff that we get out of adventuring was exactly the same. And that got me thinking that you could, you can kind of have an adventure anywhere, can't you? It's Maybe it's more in the mind and the heart than anywhere else. And therefore perhaps I don't need to go to these distant expensive places. Maybe I can find it close to home. So that was one aspect. The second aspect was that by now I was Uh, getting to the point where I was making a living out of adventure uh, through writing books and giving talks and therefore that showed me that there's an audience of people out there who really like the idea of adventures but not many of these people are actually having adventures themselves why not well real life of course most people uh have got jobs and mortgages and commitments and a cat to feed and all this sort of real life stuff so i started to wonder whether there was a way to get all the good things that i enjoyed about adventure and presumably all these people who came to my talks enjoyed about adventure and package it in a way that was short and simple and local and affordable So that we can do this sort of stuff at the weekends or after work and the overriding premise of it all was that it's always better to do some adventure than no adventure just because you can't do a massive adventure doesn't just mean then that the alternative is to do zero adventure so trying to just find what opportunities are available for adventure Rather than getting sad about the obstacles and the barriers that are stopping you perhaps having the adventure of a lifetime. So going for a lifetime of living a little bit adventurously rather than just dreaming of one mythical adventure of a lifetime. That was the starting premise to it.
0: Over the years, Alistair had heard people describe themselves as normal and him as the adventurer. I'm not though, he'd say. I'm just a person too. So he flipped the script. We're all just normal people in our own ways, but we can all be adventurers. And the steps we take to do that don't need to be large. They just need to be taken. The idea took off like wildfire. Local micro adventure groups began to pop up around the world. With each new interview, article, podcast episode, he was reaching a broader and broader audience. And just one year after first coining the term, he was named a National Geographic Adventurer of the Year. Not for biking around the world, but for inspiring us to explore smaller and closer to home.
1: I've spent a lot of time encouraging people who are busy with their nine to five working lives to just try and park the idea that the nine to five block your adventure, and instead to just do a little thought experiment of flipping that round and wondering about instead the five to nine the 16 hours of hypothetical th- freedom that we have each day when we finish work and of course people have commitments and real life of course but hypothetically i think it's interesting that we don't often consider this as adventure time we just see it as oh, time to sleep before i go back to work so spent a lot of time trying to encourage people to look for five to nine micro adventures when you finish work one evening head out of your town wherever you live you're never more than say an hour from nice countryside and go sleep on a hill for the night sleep under the stars wake up in the morning come back down the hill have a quick swim in a river and then head back to work for nine o'clock and loads of people have been doing that it's simple it's easy it's great but I'm very conscious that there'll still be a lot of people who are like, whoa, that still sounds pretty epic and scary for me. So then I've been making things even simpler to say, well, why don't you just go sleep in your garden, sleep in your backyard for the nights. just sleep outside your house. And I, I did that um, when I was writing my microadventures book. And to be honest, I felt a bit silly. When I was a kid, I used to love sleeping in the backyard, in the garden. But as an adult, it felt very silly to be just pulling my perfectly good duvet and pillow outside and lying down just outside my front door and yet once you're lying there you see the stars you hear the wind blowing through the trees you hear the owls the birds singing at night the nighttime creatures and um you you really get pretty much i'd say 70 percent of the experience that you would if you were camping on some distant hilltop it's outdoors it's something a bit different and then what's really important about it is when you wake up in the morning you think oh that was great and it actually wasn't that hard and it wasn't that scary and i wasn't scared of ghosts so maybe next week i can go try sleeping on the local hill so making things so unbelievably small that you personally feel comfortable to do it and then start to build up some confidence and momentum from that. I think that's the key towards getting going on adventures.
0: Alistair quickly began embarking on his own micro-adventures. One week, he floated down a river in Wales on old tractor tire tubes. He cooked dinner in the woods. He built a log raft from scratch. He went on sunrise hikes. He went swimming in rivers. But most importantly, he began to shift his perspective and in doing so, help others to shift theirs. Yes, a nine to five job means eight hours of the day are always booked, but the other 16 are wide open and it doesn't matter where you are.
1: For quite a long time, I would just go and do talks all over the world. I really enjoyed doing that, but it quite often meant I'd arrive in some place do a talk and then come home again and and it seemed a shame to me that i'd miss out on all this adventure potential um quite often i'd be speaking at some sort of business conference and they would very kindly put me up in a hotel and at first i'm like woohoo free hotel amazing and i steal all the shampoo woohoo but eventually you realize that all of these hotels are exactly the same everywhere in the world and actually a bit boring and i realized that what I was doing here was making the mistake of not looking for the opportunities of adventure. So what I've started to try to do it now is whenever I have a talk somewhere that I hadn't been before, I try and find a way to just get out and sleep on a hill for a night.
0: It's mad. No one does that. No one gives a talk in a city and camps. But one of his most memorable micro-adventures of all time happened during one of those trips.
1: I was doing a talk near uh, Austin in Texas. I'd never been there, never been to Texas. So I was quite excited. Uh, So I arrived in the aeroplane and I got into the hire car, which I was gonna use to drive to the event. But rather than just going to stay in some sort of boring hotel and stealing yet more shampoo, I decided that I would just go and have a micro adventure. I'd find somewhere wild to sleep for the night. So over and this might sound like quite a scary idea to people who haven't done it before but remember i spent four years just having to find somewhere to sleep every night and once you get good at finding places to sleep you realize that you can pretty much sleep anywhere on the planet as long as someone hasn't seen you disappear off behind those trees, you're entirely safe. No one knows you're there. And suddenly the darkness becomes your friend and the world is just full of wild camping spots. I love it. I'm really good at it now. It's one of my few skills. So what I would do is I'd drive down the motorway till it was getting towards say sunset time. And then I'd just pull off and I would just follow my nose down random little country roads until eventually I found a bridge going over a river. I always like bridges going over rivers because they're a great chance to look out the window and look down. Is there a wild swimming spot here? Is there maybe a good secluded place to camp? Yeah, this place looked great for both. A little creek running through a little wood in Texas, perfect. So I parked the car and I went down and it was a little sandy beach and I rolled out my uh, bivvy bag and my sleeping bag. I was pretty tired and jet lagged. Uh, so I lit a fire on the beach and I was just sitting there listening to the evening sounds of Texas and the different birds that I wasn't used to, different insects chirping away. And I was thinking, this is great and no one knows I'm here, so I'm very safe. And then, gradually, I start to hear country music, quietly at first, and gradually getting louder. And then, paddling down the river towards me comes this canoe, and on there are three or four young lads, so guys in their early 20s, country sort of guys. They've been drinking beer and fishing, having a good old time, and clearly enjoying themselves. But, to be honest, when I saw them, I was like, ah, I didn't really want anyone to know I'm here. And they're like, hey, what are you doing here? And I'm like, oh, hello, I'm from England. I've just got off the aeroplane and I'm now sleeping by this river. (laughs) And they clearly thought this was the strangest thing they'd ever heard. So they started chatting to me and I thought, right, I'll have a friendly chat with them and then hopefully they'll go away and leave me uh, so I can go to sleep. But they were like, well, you're amazing. You're from England. We're going to go and get a McDonald's and get some whiskey and come back. (laughs) So they went off and got a McDonald's and some whiskey and came back. And it was fascinating there were three young guys and they were all about to uh, join the u.s army and they were nervous about getting shipped off to places like afghanistan middle east europe they'd never been anywhere in the world before and they were just asking me questions about all these places in the world and we had a fantastic evening just sitting by this fire and then in them and then they went home and i slept by the fire and woke up at dawn and i drove off to some anonymous sort of conference centre, smelling like smoke, but having had a fantastic travel experience just by choosing to try and look for the opportunities that you can find adventure in lots of places. It was brilliant.
0: As micro-adventures go, that's a pretty extreme example. Not everyone would feel safe doing that, but it's indicative of the spirit of it. You can go on a micro-adventure anywhere at any time and you don't need to go far.
1: I realized that over lots of years, I'd got to know, I don't know, Uzbekistan or Bolivia or places like this. And yet I didn't really know some town five miles down the road from where I lived that I'd never been to before. So I wondered whether I could find some interesting places close to home. And I've quite a negative attitude to where I live, which is a fairly boring, suburban landscape just outside a big city and that's not a very useful approach to have to life so I wondered then whether I could address that by getting to know where I live a bit more deeply and then the other thing that I was trying to mull over was how can I find a way to try and help more people have more outdoor experiences more often wherever they happen to live so all these ideas were whirring around my head and I decided to try and challenge myself to spending a whole year just exploring the single map that I live on. All of Britain is divided up into Ordnance Survey maps and they cover about 20 kilometres by 20 kilometres, so about 12 miles by 12 miles and their maps divided up into individual grid squares, little blue one kilometre grid squares. So I decided to see whether I could spend a whole year only on this one map that I live on and what I would do to get to know it is I would go out each week and I would explore just one isolated kilometre grid square in as much depth as I possibly could. The first week of exploring my map when I thought that this was maybe a really terrible idea and that I should give up on it I decided to go and explore what looked to be the most boring grid square on my map. So I looked carefully at my map and I found a place that had nothing on it. There were no roads, no contour lines, and no big hills, there were no rivers, there were no interesting looking woodlands or footpaths. It just looked like an empty bit of nothing. So I went there and started to just try to pay attention to every single thing that I saw. And once I started to do that, then I, once you see one little thing, you then notice there are lots more little things and more little things and more little things. And I came away from that just realizing that there was so much to see, even in a supposedly empty grid square. The more I started to pay attention, the more I realized was out there and available. And the closer I, looked at something small the bigger and bigger the map became and it turned into a fascinating year of opening my eyes to nature it woke me up to the massive problems we have in the uk and the world of loss of wildlife loss of wild places and enthused me to try and commit to helping the natural world Once you start to know the name of something and you get more of a connection to it, you start to care about it, you start to get a bit more interested in it. And that then got me thinking of just the sheer scale of nature and wildlife that was even on this anonymous little grid square, let alone across the rest of my country or continent or world, which then got me mulling over the fact that, oh, wow, look, up there I can see the, the sun and that's in the solar system. And then I realized that where uh, that there's thousands and thousands of solar systems and galaxies. And before I knew it, I'd just blown my mind with the realization that I'm in a lucky position whereby I can go pretty much anywhere on the planet and explore and have adventures. But how the heck do I choose where to go when everywhere is so rich and interesting and given that enormous conundrum of trying to choose where to go maybe the simplest thing to do is just explore where I am right now right this very minute and to allow myself to be filled with awe and astonishment and wonder at all this right now and there's more within this one little square mile than I can ever begin to take in so why on earth do I need to go disappearing off to different places continents perhaps it's enough to just pay attention and be astonished and find that wherever you happen to be
0: we think of pursuing adventure as an escalation of experiences but maybe it should be a distillation even if it's just sleeping in your own backyard braving a chilly evening wild swimming foraging for your dinner even just daring to step outside the bounds of your routines. Perhaps this was the realization he'd been looking for all along. This is how we can have the thrill of adventure and the contentment of home at the same time. He didn't need to go bigger and further. He needed to go smaller and closer to home.
1: When I was doing my really big expeditions, I loved that they were in beautiful, wild, natural places, but those natural landscapes were very much like a green screen to my own experiences. I was having a fantastic time in this beautiful place, but I didn't really give much thought to that place. This year, by scheduling that, within the busyness of my normal daily life, I was going to commit to going out once a week to somewhere really close to where I live, and I was gonna explore it, that made me connect to the land far more deeply than cycling across a continent ever did and i think having that regularity of time outdoors was really helpful because from that you come to notice the seasons changing and you start to notice your place within the seasons and within the year and and then grow a connection from that and a lot of the places that i was wandering around aren't particularly beautiful as sort of falling down factories but with trees starting to grow through the cracks in the pavement and flowers and the butterflies that are flying around around the broken brickwork that I started to think wow this is beautiful and this is worth caring about and the more that I realised how little nature there is in Britain how much has been lost made me treasure what is there even more and made me more passionate to try and say hey we've got to do something about this we've got to start to turn this all around and You don't start to shout about stuff until you care about it. And you don't start to care about somewhere until you feel connected to it. And you don't start to feel connected somewhere until you notice it. And you don't notice it until you go there and you go there regularly and you go there consciously and slowly to just pay attention to what you're experiencing right now. Not to be scrolling through your phone's Instagram feed and listening to music on your headphones, to just sit on a log, in a wood, or in a broken down bit of factory, and just sit there for a little bit and notice it. And from that, the noticing comes the love, comes the caring. And then you get this wonderful positive feedback loop of the more you see, the more you notice, the more you care, the more you see, and round and round it goes.
0: At the end of every episode, I say, the more we look for wonder in the world, the more the wonder of the world becomes a part of who we are. Alistair had set out around the world looking for the life of his dreams and it turned out he found it all those years later on his doorstep where he began. The first border he crossed was turning his dreams into reality. The last one was turning reality into his dreams. Thank you so much, Alistair, for sharing your stories, wisdom, and life of adventure near and far, big and small. I've been so inspired by this story. I've known about micro-adventures for a long time, but for some reason, I've never really lived that. And I'm going to start doing that now. In fact, I'm going winter camping next month by myself. I'm just going to hike out into the snow, build a fire, cook some dinner, and find out what's better, watching Netflix again or watching the stars. I think I know the answer. So if you're as inspired as me, go to his website, go online and get one of his books. He's written one about everything we talked about today, including, which I particularly recommend, his latest book called Local. His website is alistairhumphreys.com and you can follow him on Instagram at alistairhumphreys. I've put those links in the show notes, so go and check it out right now. Thank you so much for listening and don't forget to share this show with your friends if you can. Connect with us on Instagram at Armchair Explorer Podcast and follow us on your favorite podcast platform. It takes just a moment and it really does us a huge favor that helps us to keep making this show for you. And don't forget to visit aptpodcaststudios.com. That's our network for more on their shows as well. So until next time, go on a micro adventure and look more closely at the world on your doorstep. Because, here it comes, the more we look for wonder in the world, the more the wonder of the world becomes a part of who we are. Dare to be truly alive. This episode was produced by Armchair Productions. Find our other shows at armchair-productions.com. Armchair Explorer is a part of ABT Podcast Studios. Jenny Allison wrote and produced the show along with me, and Charles Tyree did the audio editing and sound design. Our theme music was written by the artist Sweet Chat. I'm Aaron Miller. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.